Claritas is an industry leader in providing brands, agencies, and publishers with a complete closed-loop marketing platform to help marketers identify the right potential customers more precisely, deliver more effective multi-channel campaigns across audiences' preferred channels, and optimize campaigns more accurately and efficiently through a robust attribution and incremental lift analysis measuring both online and offline channels, including podcast, digital audio, and advanced television. Claritas's offerings are strengthened by the recent acquisition of Arts AI, integrating AI-powered technology to underpin an already robust identity graph, which fuels the accuracy, effectiveness, and efficiency of all their solutions. Claritas is committed to being an independent third-party partner, providing marketers with an unbiased and objective approach for building, executing, and measuring online and offline marketing campaigns. Find out more at claritas.com. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Shahar Scott. Shahar has had an incredible career, which she is very, very much in the midst of. I, I must say that when our crack Great Minds research team, Shahar, came back with the volumes of research that they had done on you, there were a lot of things that I learned that were just really impressive. And we had a little joking conversation that you must surely be either much older than I think or much younger than I think. But your record uh, thus far going around that racetrack is just really inspiring. You're now the VP of marketing at Reality Labs, part of the Meta family. We are looking forward to Meta being a big part of Advertising Week, as always, coming up in New York. I think, Shahar, it's year 20. They're telling me it's 19. The COVID math, you know, really. is off. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think it's 20, but, but everyone's saying it's 19. So uh, welcome. And I'm really glad to have a chance to spend some time with you. Thank you so much for having me. It is truly an honor. Oh, my goodness. So, Char, I, one of the things that I uh, uh, saw you say somewhere along the line was how you turned your greatest weakness into your greatest strength. And I really love that. I'd love to talk about Say, but yeah. I'd love you to sort of start you know, there. I thought that was a very personal and revealing thing to say. And also was the kind of thing that I'm guessing you were saying because it might help other people who hear you say that. Yeah, you're right. And and even just hearing you say it, um, you know, gives me chills. Um, so so yeah, I mean, I I grew up in Israel, moved here when I was five, and somehow during that process um, of trying to learn another language and my brain working a little bit faster than my words could come out, I started to develop a stutter and growing up, like my mom stuttered a little bit. My brother did, he has a pretty profound stutter. And so I just kind of thought it was normal. And then you go to school and, you know, kids can be cruel. And I was lucky enough that the elementary school that I um, went to had speech therapy. And so I like, just thought it was a normal part of my day. Cause I went through 12 years of speech therapy, went through like the whole thing. And, you know, the older I got, the more I got comfortable with it and, and the better I got at being able to, you know, practice my tricks and kind of monitor my breathing and I became more fluent, but it is something that I literally think about every single day. And it's something that I think about every time I have a conversation that is too, you know, one-on-one -on -one or that is in front of many. And so it will never leave me. And it's not something that you like grow out of. I've just gone through a lot of training and I'm also much more comfortable now in my skin. But when I was living in New York, young 20s, I discovered then an organization called Our Time. I was always pretty like, you know, active as a volunteer in other areas. And I found this organization, Our Time and founder Taro Alexander. And the thought that kids don't have speech therapy was like, it blew my mind. It's like, how could this be? And so I reached out and I said, what can I do to help? You know, at the time I was broke. I was probably working like three jobs 
And I couldn't donate, but I could donate my time. And I met the organization. I met the kids. And I was, again, I just like blown away by the fact that kids didn't have access to speech therapy. And so our time gave them free speech therapy. And um, through that process of becoming a volunteer and a mentor and going to a couple of their events, they invited me uh, to join the board. And when I agreed to do it, I said, only if you allow me to rebrand the company, because the organization had been around. And at the time, there was a dating app that was also called Our Time. And so the founder would get like a phone call that was, my son is being bullied because his teacher won't call on him and all this horrible stuff. And then the next call would be like, Ethel won't meet me for my date, and I want my money back. And I was like, we, we got to make this more about the services and what we provide. And I was able to, with the help of, of some brilliant people in the industry who volunteered their time, uh, we landed on say.org, which is Stuttering Association for the Young. Um, and we got the URL for like nothing at the time, which is crazy. And through that, I do a lot of advocacy on behalf of stuttering and, and I have gotten really comfortable with talking about it because it is so important for parents to know that there are services for kids if they don't have it. And so, yes, I am very vocal about it, not only because I'm comfortable sharing about it, but also because I know how much Say has done to help kids all over the world, actually, now. It started in New York, Say across the USA is in almost like every state we are We've got people in Australia, we've got people all over Europe who come to our programs and get services for speech therapy and competent voices. And so it is a disability and one could look at it that way, or you can use it as like a force for good. And, and that's what I've done. And so I tend to also talk about my stutter at the beginning of a big presentation or even a podcast because it instantly like takes the pressure off of me. So that you know, if I stutter, that's just how I talk and you don't try to finish my sentences, but also it just takes the edge off the audience and me feeling uncomfortable. So I do it selfishly. I do it very, you know, unselfishly to help other other families make sure that they know that there is free services out there for kids. That's uh, just an amazing story. Maybe I should have you ask the questions and we would have started there had I not gone in that direction. So I love that you started there. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So we just uh, spoke to a group that we love and we work with called the Valuable 500. It started by a woman, Dr. Carolyn Casey, who's legally blind. And she started this organization and got Paul Pullman, then CEO of Unilever, behind her which is a very good ally to have. And it basically is a group of now over 500 of the world's leading corporations who are all committed to hiring more people with disabilities. And what I learned in the latest conversation we had with them, the total population globally of people with disabilities is one in five, one in five, about 1.3 billion people. And so many you know, of them fall between the cracks. I would imagine the community that is in need of speech therapy in America and young people in particular when, you know, your formative years, I'm going to guess that's a pretty high number. Yeah, very, very. And it's like one in seven stutter. Like it's, it's so high. And yeah, it, it can be incredibly alienating and isolating. And as I said, like kids are incredibly cruel and, and teachers can be cruel and administrators who don't understand what is happening and and how, and, and no two stutters are the same. So even if you had a student once that stuttered one way, the next one may sound different and then they're still left perplexed. And if they don't do the research or don't have the empathy and compassion to give people time to get their words out, it's not that they don't know what they wanna say, it's just they literally can't get the words out. It's just tragic, right? And so, as a as a as a leader, as a manager, as a colleague, it does give me a lot of empathy because most disabilities are also invisible, and and you just never know what someone is going through or how they process information, or and so it it has given me a lot of empathy about just like working with different types of people because you just can't assume that people read from left to right. Like it's just 
it is just a part of kind of how I've always led my life, but I'm, you know, I don't let it get in the way. Cause yeah. I think that the biggest thing I want to impart is just like, don't let it get in the way. Yeah, no, that is crystal clear. I, I, I don't think you've let anything get in your way uh, for quite a long time. I love what we began. Let's stay in an area and a place that I know you're passionate about. And we're going to come back to this. We're not done with that that subject. But let's talk a little bit about Amherst. I know what a special place that is. I know UMass is a special place for you and your family. I would hope by now with all the money your parents have spent there that there's a building named after you somewhere. Can we talk a little about uh, UMass and Amherst? Yeah, yeah. So my my um, my dad actually was um, sponsored by the state of Israel to get his PhD when I was very young. And he got into three schools. He got into Temple, Harvard, and UMass Amherst that had the like programs that had the specialty that he was in, which was administrative psychology. And he visited all three and, and really fell in love with Amherst and the community, the public schools there. So I have two older siblings and we were all going to be in elementary, middle school and, and high school. And he chose Amherst. And so we moved here with 10 suitcases, like no English, literally none of us spoke English. And we thought we were going to be here for a year. He would like do his research and then we'd, we'd go back. Obviously it did not take one year, it took four years. By that time, my mom started her PhD also at UMass in education. And the rest is kind of history. But like by the time that my brother was of the age of either going to the army and moving back or going to college, he obviously chose college. And since my parents taught there, he went to UMass. And then four years later, my sister followed. And then I was like a little bit of a rebel. And I, you know, in high school, I took classes actually at the five colleges at Amherst and Smith, Mount Holyoke. And so I was able to graduate a year early from high school, which I did. And then I, I was like, I'm going to go somewhere else. And my parents said, you can try to go somewhere else, but then you're kind of like on your own for grad school. And I was like, shit, because I knew I wanted to go to grad school. And so I ended up also going to UMass. A lot of my friends went, I, I intentionally made it like a very different Amherst for me. I didn't just kind of stay in the same routines that I had as, as a teen. And I loved it. I thrived. I was a major in poli sci and women's studies. And then I went on to grad school. And yeah, so like my my family's still in Amherst. My sister has worked at UMass for 25 years. She has, I can't even, I don't have enough fingers to count how many degrees she has. She's had multiple masters and multiple um, doctorate degrees. So we're kind of a family of like eternal students or experienced students that just keep learning. But education was always really important to my parents and they instilled that in us. So Amherst is still, you know, I'm actually going there next weekend for my 25th high school reunion. So it'll be fun to see some old faces, but I do, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Amherst and UMass and I've gone back um, a lot to do some things with the school as well. So I'm a few years ahead of you. So my 25th anniversary was a while ago. I graduated from my high school Cardozo in Bayside, Queens yeah, of course, in I 1982. And I, what I, my recollection from the 25th anniversary was that the women on the whole looked much better than the men. The men <laughs> aged very poorly. <laughs> that was what I remember. So, I'll report back next week. Okay. So when I went to college, we'll stay back in the eighties for another moment. I went to Emory and I remember my dad gave me what was supposed to be my first semester's worth of money. He gave it to me, you know, when I left late August and I ran out of money in like a couple weeks, you know, that was supposed to last until Christmas. So I got a job and the first job I had was as a cook at mm -hmm. a place called Jaggers. And then I ended up bartending at another place called the dugout and I worked and I juggled jobs and I did hustled to make money. You hustled to make money yeah. in college. Talk about that experience of you know, having to get up early, having to stay up late, you know, having to say no to some things, even though I'm guessing we both had a pretty good time, you know, in college, but having to say no to things because you had a shift. Yeah. Talk about yeah. that. 
Yeah. And I, I worked at Chili's. I was, I was a waitress and a bartender there, um, all throughout college. And I also, um, worked at a, at a law firm. I was a paralegal, um, because I, I really thought I was going to go down that track. And so I wanted to get, you know, an internship experience. And I did that for all four years. I did. I've, I've, I've always been a hustler. You know, I've always had like the maximum amount of extracurricular activities as a kid. And I just, I, I honestly think this is like the immigrant mentality. It's like you do everything you can because you literally can. It's like, I don't take anything for granted. I know what my parents compromised and sacrificed to bring us here and give us a completely different life. I don't want to say better, just very different than what it would have been in Israel. And I'm truly grateful like every single day for everything that I can do. And so I feel the need to do it. It is rare for me to say no, I probably should say no more, but I just, I've always like maximized every hour of the day. And that was like a big part of it for me in college too, is like, I knew that I didn't want to just do it to like get the four-year degree Cause that isn't like, it's just that's such like a small part of it. Right. And so it was for me about like really figuring out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And also like, yeah, make money and, and be able to like support myself and have fun while doing it. But it was, I've always had like an immigrant work ethic and mentality for sure. I love that story. And, and that's worth repeating that going back to the beginning of our conversation and everything you overcame, you know, with regard to being such now a, a brilliant public speaker, let alone carrying on a conversation, uh, but you came over not even knowing a word of English. Yeah, I was in I was in ESL for a couple of years, and to the point where, like, by the time that I was in junior high, I was proofreading my mom's dissertation and like helping her. Um, you know, because for them, like, they were in their late thirties, early forties, and you know, it's harder actually to learn a language then. And so me and my sister, my brother, like learned it much faster um, through like watching TV and like reading things. And it was, it's a lot easier for us. And so, yeah, I remember like very vividly proofreading and helping my mom make sure that her dissertation was like in the exact way that she wanted it to be articulated. Great stuff. And and I think there's a, a certain places I think are more special than others. And I happen to be a, a big fan. Everybody who I know from Minnesota, I just think the world of there's something about, you know, from Lindsey Vaughn to Chuck Porter, you know, on one end yeah. to the other, I'm certain that the names Lindsey Vaughn and Chuck Porter have never been said consecutively out loud until it's this, very, it's a good un tearing un up. until this very moment, Shahar. And Massachusetts is another one. And I'll share something with you. I'm not sure when this will post. Uh, so it may have been announced by then, but I was just in Massachusetts. You have a terrific governor, uh, Healy, and your secretary of economic development, Yvonne Howe, is also terrific. She used to work at Bain, so she's not a career, you know, yeah. hack, not a, not, yeah. a, not a political hack. You know, yes. she's, she's a, a brilliant woman. And your state, because of the UMass Amherst, and Harvard and MIT uh, and the other universities and research institutions, Massachusetts way over indexes globally on climate tech, global research and development. 40% of the world's thinking around the climate yeah. and technology comes from Massachusetts. And we are gonna create a big event in Boston around that oh, wow. globally in 2024. And they invited me up and they said, "This we have a big strength here. Is this something we can think of to highlight that strength and to show leadership on the issue at the state level? Because that's where a lot of the decisions from a policy vantage point are made that actually affect real people. Um, wow. And certainly on the federal level, despite the efforts of your uh, former boss, John Kerry, you know, I just don't think we're really getting it done yeah. on the federal level and these COP meetings. The next one is in the UAE and the chair of the meeting is also the chair of like the leading oil. Oil, trade, I was gonna say trade, oil. Right, like something very big with oil. Yeah. And that you're chairing right. literally the same guy and it says it. They don't even try to 
Hi, like I, I would yeah. maybe bury that in a in a smaller font. No, it's right there. Uh, oil and uh, sustain. Okay, so uh, I'm excited about that, and I love Massachusetts. My daughter went to BU, and I, I really oh, love. Yeah. I really love Boston. We got to go to the World Series when the Sox were in it a few yeah. years ago, and I love Fenway. And what a what a great great state and a great great place to be. It is. I I I, I mean, I still have a four one three phone number. Like that's how much I love you know Amherst, Massachusetts. So I have definitely held on to it, and I. I would love to go to that that event. That sounds incredible. Yeah, no, I think uh, yeah, this should be a very big deal. So we, we yeah, got a little we got amazing. a little more little more cooking to do in the kitchen, but uh, we're almost ready to announce it, and uh, it'll be exciting. So let's talk about your early tenure. You were really one who got your hands dirty, working at the grassroots level, working for not for profits, advocating for important issues. And I know that you've been part of a number of women's leadership groups, you know, throughout your career, but talk about the experience of really getting on the front lines, you know, at that grassroots level. Yeah. So this is also something that I think it was just like ingrained in me um, and my parents who are incredible. My dad was one of the first social workers in Israel and, and he helped to um, ensure safe and legal abortions for women and you know a woman's right to choose and make decisions about her health has just always been something that again i just grew up thinking that that was like a human right fundamental um non like not up for debate when i realized as an adult that like those things are taken for granted and that um they are actually compromised in many states i couldn't just sit back and my my first job was working for John Kerry. And, you know, there were like 10 of us that all graduated at the same time from um, undergrad and all went to go work for his fourth senatorial race. But really, it was like foundational work happening for his presidential run. And so we were like laying the foundation for what was to come. And I had the choice of like which areas I wanted to work on. And I got the, to choose his women's platform and work with Teresa Hines, his wife, and at the time, Hillary Clinton, and so many others who were advocating on behalf of women. And I um, joined forces at the time with Planned Parenthood in Massachusetts, who was, you know, at the time there were, I think, like three, maybe four clinics, Springfield, Worcester, and Boston. And like, that was it. And like, it's a pretty small state, but that's a lot of driving from one end to another. There was, there were shootings, there was a lot of violence um, against the workers there. And so one of the first things that I worked on was his platform around making sure that women had access to emergency contraception, which is now known as Plan B. At the time, it was illegal. I led a very grassroots effort to like locally educate um, and lobby essentially for access, education and access for women. And that is honestly how I fell in love with like marketing and communications, because it is literally convincing someone that this thing is better than the alternative or something that they didn't even know they needed. They now need to care about. And that is really, that is marketing when you distill it. And so I, I found myself really gravitating towards this issue and realizing how much work there needed to be done. And so after I finished my year with Carrie, Planned Parenthood wanted me to come work for them. And I did, and I continued that work. And we did legalize emergency contraception and Massachusetts was one of the first states, and then it it rolled out in in many others to follow. That was like the you know gateway to also getting the medical abortion pill legally um, approved and available in pharmacies, so that women didn't have to go to clinics to get it actually, so that they were safer getting access to just basic health. And yeah, I mean, I I did that for a couple of years, and and then I continued that work in New York and helped with an organization that was trying to keep the um, judicial bench pro-choice. It was an organization that had a platform called Benchmark. And, you know, I, I did that for, um, in total, my time in nonprofit was about 
five years. And then I really, I was like, okay, I'm not going to law school. <laughs> I, I don't want to be a lawyer, but I really love what I'm doing. And I want to do it for lots of things. And I started going to Columbia and got my master's in marketing while working at Columbia to offset some of the very expensive grad school bills. And um, yeah, and I, and that's like where I really cut my teeth and, and really realized like there's a whole world out there, agency life and media companies and creative shop, all this like ability to do and learn so much. And that's, that was like a very long answer, but the, the nonprofit side, like never left me. The issues that I care about are still very, very close to my heart. And I continue to be, you know, an, an advocate and a supporter for women's rights and even more so now when they are completely compromised. Yeah, this is tough, tough, tough times. We uh, hosted a, uh, a fundraiser last night for someone I know literally since he was born who's running for the seat uh, to try to get George Santos out of Congress, out of the 435 congressional districts in the United States of America, the one I live in is represented by Santos. And when I introduced Zach last night, I, I was hearkening back. We had a number of Brits in the room. And I said, you know, we left you over in taxation without representation. You know, with Santos, we have representation without representation. We, in effect, have no congressman. He's not involved in anything of, of any consequence whatsoever. As someone who's such a passionate advocate, it's got to be tough to look at what's happening right now. And I don't want to go too deep here. I want to get back to business, but this is a very big part of who you are. Yeah, it, it is tough. And it's tough as a parent to like have some of these conversations that honestly, I never thought I'd have to have. Like, I never thought it, I would have to have that conversation of like what it, what it would take in order to be able to uh, protect my daughter's health rights. Like I just never, I mean, just never thought about it. it being, especially because it has been such a long time since that early foundational work was done and since Roe and, and all these things that have been put in place to protect those rights. And so, yeah, I mean, it is, it is tough. I also like, I went through IVF to have my kids and was that the way I thought I was going to have kids? Like, no, but that was my right. And that was my choice. And, and I did everything I could to become a mom. And so there are so many decisions that we have to make as adults and they should be our decisions with the help of science and the advancements that have been afforded us. Um, and the access that we do have, like, I mean, Meta now pays for a lot of the things that I didn't have access to and, and paid out of pocket for. And it's like, it's, to think that, you know, it, that there are people crossing state lines and just unable to access basic women's health is just, it is like, I just can't fathom it. It's like, I can't fathom kids not having access to speech therapy. It's just, it is like a human right. Yeah. I, I listened to a great, great podcast a while ago. You know, Adam McKay. Yeah. So course. super accomplished and, yeah. you know, more thought of in comedy, but also did Vice and, yeah, know, has, done, has done a lot of stuff. And he did a series, it was about nine episodes. I think that might be a second season now. It was called Death at the Wing. Mm. And he yeah. juxtaposed the rise of the NBA and Reaganism. And it was very interesting the way he wow. weaved it all together. And basically it was about the systematic gutting of the social safety net going back to you know 1980 and Reagan and how the NBA evolved as a place where the earliest players who spoke out against issues, not only were they, it was beyond frowned upon, nobody would sign them. Yeah. There were two really good players, a guy named Craig Hodges who played for the Bulls and a guy who, he was Chris Jackson and he changed his name to, I think, Mahmoud Al, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation, but he changed his name to a Muslim, Al-Ralph, something very similar to that. Mahmoud, I can't, I can't remember the exact pronunciation, but he's, in college, he was Chris Jackson, played for LSU, great player. And Hodges was a great player. And they both spoke out on social issues. And one of them, I think the, the Bulls, he uh, won the championship. Hodges was on the Michael Jordan Bulls. Mm -hmm. And they went to the White House and he left a note for President Bush. And the next year he was not signed as a player. Oh my God. Today, the NBA is this bastion 
of, you know, progressive and that's all David Stern and now continued by Adam Uh, Silver. But it's an interesting time in America, you know, uh, for issues and protecting the people who are often least equipped to protect to protect themselves. Yeah. And like I've never actually made this link, but, you know, for me, it is about like speaking out for people that might not have a voice. Right. Or might not have the words. And if I can say them, like I will on, on their behalf. And it's, it is just it, the courage that it takes to speak out is critical. We need more people that are advocating for issues that are important. And that again, like are just fundamental human rights. Yeah. Like it's not asking for things above and beyond that, honestly, is how I feel. Yeah. And that you've continued to stay so active with say, you know, yeah. that's that advocacy. You know, yeah. no matter what the issue, right? Because right. these things are all worthy and all in need of attention and focus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Fantastic. There's all just right. not enough time in the day, Matt. No, well, you know, that's we make more time, right? We, we mm-hmm. find ways to squeeze it in. So let's talk about your uh, jump into the agency world. You worked for three different agencies, really different. Scott, I was very friendly with. Ian, I was very friendly with. Digitas, legendary. I just had their current CEO on uh, on Great Minds. I love Digitas. Very different places, all pretty cool, but in very different ways. Yeah, and I got I was like right place, right time because it was just as everything changed. Honestly, once the App Store launched and Facebook launched, and I was there when all that happened, right? So it was like the beginning of innovation. And what, 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 what I really like fell in love with and all those different organizations. And I'm still very close to lots of people fr- from my time there and, and definitely um, Ian and Scott is like technology and the industry was changing the way that marketers had to think about reaching their consumers. And like, that is what I loved. I love the fact that like, we couldn't just take the playbook for what we did from one Amex product and just apply it to the next thing that, that they were doing or HBO, because like every day, the channels, the surfaces, the media mix, everything was changing. One of my first projects at Strawberry Frog, it was like right after the App Store launch and YouTube launch. And it was like, we were working with um, Pampers and um, PNG, and it was the Thank You Mom campaign, the first one right around the 2008 Olympics. And I like, I remember like having the conversation with a brand manager being like, trust me, this digital video thing is, it's going to be a thing, you know, it's, it's money well spent. And we, we were like some of the first advertisers on YouTube. Um, that's how I met my now best friend, Marnie Shapiro. It was just like, it was a magical time because there was no playbook. You like, couldn't say, oh, we did this for Coke. Now we're going to do this for Pep. It was like, we were making it up as we went along because Facebook was changing the rules and the pages and the specs and the pixels every day. And um, I remember working for HBO for the season two launch of True Blood and we were like, we're going to make the page bleed. And this is like before HTML. And it was like, how are we going to make the Facebook page bleed red um, to really get people to like tune in to like butts and seats for when the premiere was going to happen. And just marketing was just changing so quickly. And I loved it. And I loved the role that agencies played in bringing that innovation to brands and also just helping create things that have never been done before. And I genuinely loved it. And then I ended up getting recruited. My last project at Strawberry Frog was we were, again, the app store had just launched. There were still like seven flashlight apps in the app store, right? It was like people were just launching things left and right. And Pampers was far beyond their years. They had 25 plus years of data on parents. And they wanted to elongate the shelf life of like the like LTV of what their um, relationship was with parents because typically it's like you're in diapers for two ish years and then you graduate and then unless you have another you kind of forget about the brand and at the same time they had all this information and data about parents and what their needs were far beyond diapers and so we as a strategist like I looked at all that and we came up with a series of seven developmental apps that 
PNG would launch. The first of which was Hello Baby, which was the first pregnancy calculator in the app store. And what was so cool about that, we had 3D images of the fetus for the first time ever. And so it was like, not just you're like, today it's a blueberry, today, you know, tomorrow it's a mango. It was like actual like 3D renders. And um, it was the number one app in the app store. And we developed a bunch of other apps for PNG. And I was convinced like the iPod had launched and they had launched pre-launch with Nike running on every single device. And I knew that Apple and at the time iTunes had all this data, just like PNG did about parents. And I was like, gosh, what if like every single iPhone came with Hello Baby for parents that we knew were like new parents or going to be? So I was like knocking on Apple's doors, like gotta make this work. And they were like, it's never gonna happen, but come come work at Apple. So that, that's why I left agency life, but I, I genuinely loved it. And I also have a ton of respect and admiration for what agencies have gone through the last two decades. They've had to just like transform themselves constantly, which I don't envy. Yeah, no, very, very uh, uh, rough terrain for sure, the last 15 years. We're gonna come back to Marnie Shapiro because the Jewish comedian in me can't help but hear when someone says, best friend Marnie Shapiro, I have to know more. We'll come back to that. But let's go to uh, an area that's sort of related to what we were just talking about. And you mentioned launch of the App Store, launch of the iPad. I remember when RGA did that great groundbreaking work with Nike and the earliest editions you know, of, of everything Apple was producing. You've now had the benefit of hindsight as we sit here today, getting close to 2024. And you have had incredible tenures, which we are absolutely gonna dig into, not only what you're doing right now, leading the way at Meta, but you spend time at Snap and at Bumble and at Apple. And uh, I think I'm missing one, which I'll remember before we, our, our time is done. Good. So are you amazed at where this whole thing has gone from the launch of YouTube? Let's use that and the launch of the iPhone, 2006 for the iPhone, 2007 for YouTube. With the benefit of hindsight, are you amazed, surprised? Did you see some of it coming? What's your take on how fast and how far we've come, driven largely by those technologies? Like as a consumer, honestly, I'm like delighted because I think that the changes for the most part, I mean, again, like putting aside privacy and brand safety and all that, like the the way that brands have to think about the relationship that they have with consumers is unbelievable. It's not one, two, 10 touch points. It's like everywhere, hundreds at a time. Um, and no two markets are the same. No two platforms are the same. There's, there's a savviness that that has to be kind of like in all of our DNA in order to know truly how to connect with people in a meaningful way. I think I'm honestly just like, I'm blown away every time that I think about just how each one of these major pivotal moments has. And I think that we're like at that again now with mixed reality and VR and AR is, you know, just how we are going to continue to storytell and also connect with people, each other and, and brands. And so, I mean, I don't know that I, like, I'm not someone that like sees around corners, like some of the founders I've, I've had the privilege of working with, but I think from a, as a marketer, it's been incredible to see just the ingenuity and also the demand of like how we go to market evolve every single year. And we are right now working on 24 planning and we're collecting all of our insights and all of our learnings. But then it's like, okay, well, that doesn't really apply because this thing's going to be different. Or, well, we learned a little bit here, but that was a test. And so how much of it can you apply? And so while we're always craving and sourcing insights to inform what we do, a lot of this is like trial and error. It's like, you just got to do it and then see what works and see what connects and then like optimize it and then iterate it because there is no playbook. Like there is for channels that have been around for a very long time. You know what to do on TV, you know what to do in out of home, kind of everything else goes out the window. And so for me, that's just been honestly the joy of my career is just figuring this stuff out 
every day, getting it wrong a whole bunch. But then the moments that you get it right are just like that much better. I have really loved being at that intersection of marketing and tech. Like I can't imagine being anywhere else. You just opened up a side door that I think we should walk through. Okay. You know, my career has been in sport and largely in the business of live experience and data and analytics have been zero part of my equation, right? It's all the benefit of experience, gut, planning, execution, imagination, and in my case, always trying to make people smile. Your world is tied deeply to data and analytics, but you said something that I loved. You said a lot of times, I don't know, we kind of put it aside and something else has changed and it's trial and error and it's gut. Talk about the balance of decision-making that you have. You work in a company that has an awful lot of information at your fingertips. You know a lot. Talk about how that data informs, but how as a marketer, the gut and the, just the sense, nope, I don't like that. I like this. Talk about that process of decision-making for you because you're operating on a global level. You know, one of the biggest, you know, players, I, you know, many, many dear friends at Meta, you know, Nicola and Alvin and Alex and Dari and on and on and on and on. And so impressed and, and folks who were there and who are no longer there equally impressed. You're under a lot of pressure, but I'm going to guess that you're going with gut a whole bunch. You're right. <laughs> um, and we do know a lot. Um, and we obviously look at data to make decisions. But as you said, like they, they will only take you so far. And I'll give you an, uh, actually a great example. We're right now planning holiday is like, is our you know biggest quarter, obviously. We are trying to sell the world's best headsets and smart glasses as like the go-to gifts for this holiday season. And there's an amazing new medium out there that is launching, I think this weekend or next weekend, Sphere in Las Vegas. Yeah, No one's ever done it. We don't, I mean, you can't just say it's an interactive billboard. You can't say it's experiential. You can't say it's an event. It's like all of these things all wrapped into one. And, you know, our team's like, oh, should we like do a buyout for all these things? And I'm like, I, we don't know. Like, let's try it. We have the IP, like we have incredible creative. We have incredible, like the world's best technology. So let's try it and let's see what it does. And once we see the indication that this is a signal that is like resonating and that we can actually either attribute it to whatever the metric is, awareness, consideration, actually converting people for point of purchase that right then and there to buy a Quest headset. Great, let's do as many buyouts as we can afford. But we don't, we really don't know how this new medium is going to perform. And so in that case, like no matter how many incredible pitches we heard and presentations and like very convincing arguments and like, yes, it is going to be an incredible experience, I think, to see that, um, you know, for the first time, really be a medium that we can connect with people in a different way. Who knows? Truly, who knows? Um, and and it's also in one place. It's a one-off, right? And so, like, it's not like I can say, okay, Nevada is like a key market for us. Like, we got to get all, you know. So it's not as if it is totally um, mapping into our strategy of like hitting people in that region or something. It is an experiment, and because our technology is so hard to understand. The only way that you understand it is actually by doing a demo, which is why we always do incredible interactive spaces at Adweek, for example, where people can like test and put the thing on and then like see it. And then you're like, oh my God, all of a sudden I get it. Or when you put on a for your pair of Ray-Ban Meta and you listen to this podcast and your mind will be blown and I will send you a pair. It's like, you don't get it until you try it. And so the sphere has this really cool opportunity to maybe bring the demo to many people all at one time without even putting a headset on. Like that could be pretty amazing. 
but I don't know. I think that's a great move. And I know the Dolan family and the sphere. Let's tell, tell everyone what the sphere is. So the sphere is, is, is a, you know, it's, it's a dome. It's like a 360 essentially um, experience that is an actual physical sphere, completely digital, completely immersive. 3D and inside of it, there's an experiential aspect and element. And so you can have events inside, shows, performances, demo areas, but the entire sphere itself is an interactive billboard. And so imagine it comes to life and it is, it's like putting on a headset. You literally feel like you are doing VR. It's not augmented in that way. It is like truly immersive. And you kind of, the whole world disappears and all you see is what's in front of you. It's major and it's like on the strip in Las Vegas. So it's launching in time for obviously the F1 um, Las Vegas Grand Prix is going to be there in November and then the Super Bowl. So great timing, but yeah, it's, it's experimental. Like no one's ever done it before. So we're going to be one of the first ones to try it just in time for Halloween, but I like, there is no data. And it kicks off with a big run by U2. Yeah, U2 is going to be the opening performance. I think it's this weekend, right? I think it's coming up. Yeah, yeah it's exciting. I, yeah, it I, I know I know a little bit about it because a buddy of mine, John Kamen, has done a lot of those types of spaces. And another friend yeah. of mine, Dina, works at the company that's done the Van Gogh immersive. Oh, experience. yeah, yeah. The immersive, yeah. yeah that's, and, that's... and a bunch of others. It's an exciting thing. Absolutely fascinating. So b- before we uh, move on to Meta, let's just touch lightly on a couple things. For a lot of people, working at Apple is considered to be sort of a holy grail place to work. And you shared a teacher with Steve Jobs. I think a lot of your skill, you know, as a presenter, you learn from a pretty good teacher. We've all been lucky to have good teachers in life. That must have been, you know, a really good teacher. Uh, but any reflections on your tenure? you know, back at Apple. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible and I'm still like the biggest Apple fangirl. Every device in front of me is only an, only ever be an Apple device. You know, I, I found out my very first day, like literally at new hire orientation in Cupertino, which Steve used to still present at that. I was pregnant with twins. I was like doubled over in pain in the, in the side of the auditorium I was like, I think I have appendicitis. And my brother happened to live out in Mountain View. And I called him. I was like, you got to take me to the hospital. Takes me to the hospital. Found out I don't have appendicitis, but I was pregnant with twins, which was great news. So I started working at Apple in a division called IAD. And it was actually like Steve's pet project. He had just acquired Quattro Wireless. It was trying to bring the immersive advertising experience to apps. And essentially monetize apps so that developers like Mark Zuckerberg would keep making apps and make money off of them so that the ecosystem was healthy. And Apple had never, you know, dabbled in advertising. So it was like a complete gamble. It was not, we weren't part of any team. We were this little island. Quattro, like all the employees came over and became Apple employees. And I was one of the first Apple hires after the acquisition happened. And we launched with 10 brands that each put in, you know, a hefty amount of money to go live on the platform, Amex, Macy's, Pepsi, you know, like the usual suspects. And I did that for about a year and a half and the platform kept evolving in it and it was moving in a, in a direction that wasn't as creative for me as it moved into like search. And I got the opportunity to go and launch um, iTunes radio, which we now know as Apple Music. And so it was right after the Beats acquisition and it was an opportunity to go and do something that I like loved. So I did that. And I did that for another almost two years, worked on iTunes Festival when it still happened, which was incredible. And, you know, then my kids were like two and a half, three and started like talking. And and I was commuting from New York to Cupertino. So I'd get up Monday morning, 6 a.m., land by 9 a.m., drive down, you know, and then Thursday, come back. And it was just untenable. And at the time, my husband owned a business in New York and we just like couldn't make the move at that point. And so unfortunately I left, but like I left with, I mean, I'm still friends with the people that are actually still there working on ads and in iTunes, 
but you know, I like no regrets. And I do believe I got like my PhD and marketing there because of the caliber and the level at which every single thing was developed and scrutinized. Unbelievable. I mean, 10,000 iterations of one tiny icon. It was just, it was incredible. It was incredible. And to the point about presentation training, I did work on their developer conference. And so I got to work with Duarte, Nancy Duarte, who was Steve's executive presentation coach. And I went through, you know, two years of exec presentation training through them at Apple, through Apple University. And so that was a complete game changer for me in my career, for sure. I mean, going back to where we started, talking about turning a weakness to strength. A great teacher is often underrated. And even at any age, you know, having someone like that as part of your post-university life, post-graduate school life is such a joy. I love, I love that one. I'm trying to learn to play the piano. And, uh, and I you love it. Quest three, cause and you can I, do it with piano vision. Oh my gosh. Uh, right now I'm trying to just learn, you know, the basic, basic chords. Uh, and, but imagine uh, but, being able to learn piano wherever you are. Like you don't have to have your piano with you. You have your headset everywhere you go and then you can actually play piano. I'm going to send you our I am, I am game. I am game. Okay. But the point I was, I was, that came to mind as you were talking about Nancy is I just love that one-on-one -on -one time with someone, you yeah. know, because it's really just a very, it's almost like a peaceful yeah. experience when you're one-on-one -on -one with someone without any other media on there's just words. And in this case, music. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's, just, it's, just, it's special to have that kind of relationship and sounds like Nancy, you know, I mean, what a, what an all-star she must've been. Yeah. She's incredible. She, she answered a classified ad that Steve had put in like a newspaper um, for a copywriter. And then she became, you know, she thousand songs in your pocket, like the most famous of his presentations at WWDC, like she helped him architect. Very, very cool one. Fantastic stuff. So yeah. uh, I know you had spent some time traveling a semester in Italy, and I'm guessing through early times in business, got on a plane once in a while, but then you find yourself in a global role at Snap. You know, another favorite company of ours. I love Betsy and that whole team. Talk about working uh, at Snap in a global role, which was, you know, broaden your remit considerably. Yeah, it did. And I, I was there like really at the best of times, I think, you know, I was there like as the IPO happened and we were launching in 40 markets every year. And it was unbelievable. You know, a lot of what had happened organically with a brand was that it was organic. And then it was like, okay, how do we now scale it intentionally in a new market like Dubai or like India, where the expectations from consumers in that market are very different from any other part of the world. And so, yes, I did spend a lot of time on airplanes. I was, you know, on the international team with Claire Velotti, who you know as well. Sure. And, you know, it was unbelievable to be able to launch net new markets and see how that tool changed the way that people communicate with their friends and do it in safe, private places and, and also do it like through pictures. It was an incredible experience. It moved my family to LA, which I am forever grateful to Evan and Snap for because we love it here and it's just changed our lives. And now my kids are actually at Crossroads where Evan went to school. But yeah, I mean, I, I love Snap. It, it's still a tool that like I use and, and there isn't anything quite like when you just are trying to say something and that like perfect bitmoji pops up you know, and you can just say it with a picture. So yeah, Snap was incredible. And, and I, I got to work on a lot of launches and also with a lot of great people, Kenny Mitchell, Jeremy Gorman. So just a lot of amazing people as well. Yeah. Has retained a lot of talent and also become uh, very similar to Facebook now meta, a great farm system of talent. Yeah, you're right. And you stay in a global role, have a, a year cup of coffee at Bumble? Yeah, so that was so... We're in the pandemic. We are working around the clock at Snap. And I was like coming up on four years and I genuinely like didn't not plan on leaving. And a former colleague of mine became CMO at Badoo, which was like the parent company that Bumble was going to IPO with. 
And he was like, we're, we're like, this is your job. Like you got to come here. And, you know, I've always admired Bumble from a distance. I'm happily married almost 15 years, 16. And, you know, so I missed the whole online dating thing. And so I'm not a user, a Bumble user, but I have loved what Whitney did with the brand and like for women and empowerment and how they really have brought this brand to life through experiential and college campuses and their ambassador. I, I was like blown away. So I knew that they were going to go public. I knew that was going to be an incredible experience. We did the whole roadshow and the IPO remotely. It was like before vaccines. That was another incredible experience. And yeah, I helped them launch in 150 new markets. And then it was like, oh my God, dating in Indonesia is very different than dating in, you know, India or in London. And so it was like, once again, there's no playbook. We got to like reimagine it and think about it differently so that the consumer's experience is delightful. So I did that. And then into that role, I got recruited by Meta and it was then Facebook. And I was like, God, I just got here. And as I'm talking to my former manager and I was like, huh, this is actually like my dream job. Cause I was like, oh, I'll send you somebody amazing. And then the rest is history. It's been two years and it's been unbelievable. We've launched two heads, three headsets, actually. We have launched two smart glasses. We're building the metaverse, like all the, the things that you heard at Connect this week. And I feel very, very lucky to be sitting where I am and we're, we're building the future of human connection, but it's like, no one's ever done this before. So once again, there's no playbook. As we've sort of gone through your journey, if you were to do a global search for someone who has exactly the right background to be, to be doing what you're doing, it would be you. And that doesn't happen a lot. You know, this seems like a, a real bullseye for you and for Meta. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I find myself saying like for the first time in my career, I feel like I'm at the right place at the right time in the right role, you know, cause a lot of times I've been like, oh, this is the best company, but like, am I doing the thing, you know? And here it's like every star has aligned in a way. So, so, so let's, let's dig into it a little bit more because it's one of the most interesting progressive parts, not just of business, but of culture. Talk about sort of the product mix, where it was when you started, where it is now. And if we're doing this again in a year, what new thing are we talking about in a year that we're not going to talk about today? Yeah. Well, you know, the, so there's a couple of different parts. Um, the first is VR and, and MetaQuest. And that is obviously, you know, it is an unbelievable way to experience games, entertainment, music, fitness in a very immersive environment. So you put on a Quest headset and like, you know, you, you are literally in another world. Although as you heard Mark say, like the world that we are in, if you're like on this device or on your computer, it's all the same. This is all the real world. It's it's just different parts of it, right? And you're no longer just beholden to like a 2D experience, but actually like immersive experiences. And so what we announced this week is mixed reality, which is um, the ability to actually like still have an immersive experience, but then also still be completely aware of your surroundings. So all of a sudden you're playing Lego Brick Tales on your own desk, on the desk that you are sitting at right in front of you, or you're playing piano, no, you know, in front of the couch, like wherever you are, or you're playing Beat Saber and you're playing, you know, whichever music uh, genre you care about with like me and I'm in LA and you're in New York, but we feel like we're together. And so that's a big, a big part of our commitment to like enhancing that experience. And there's a whole suite of productivity tools as well that we use. So to help people um, be more productive when they are remote from each other. And it's just, it's incredible to see what developers are making. We also announced a partnership with Roblox. So the entire Roblox catalog can be played in VR as well and soon to be in mixed reality. So that's like a huge part of what we've been working through. And then through our partnership with Luxottica, we have the Ray-Ban Meta smart glasses. So this is a 
second generation of smart glasses where you can use audio to listen to music and also make phone calls. You can now with Meta AI say, hey, Meta, call Matt, and it will call you. You can live stream to your Instagram community and it's all hands-free and it like allows you to be more present. And because it is Ray-Ban, it's like your regular pair of sunglasses, your stylish, iconic pair of black Ray-Bans. And so we actually launched in a bunch of other colors too, but that's some of the stuff that we're working on. What a remit. I, I love that you uh, have acquired the rights to the Ray-Ban brand because it's such an iconic contemporary, yeah. still very much contemporary brand. You must really love this job. I do. I do love it. I genuinely love what I do. And I love the people that we get to work with every day. It's like some of the smartest people I've ever met with and kindest. And yeah, I mean, I think we all are, we all believe in it. Like we're, we're all that crazy that we believe that this is really like the future of connection and, and how people are going to experience concerts and fitness and different ways of, of experiencing content. Cause you know, what we do is also like really hard. And because no one's done it before, we do lack sometimes the insights to be able to know that what we're doing is the right thing. But there is a lot of intuition and a lot of experience that is going into these, you know, plans and decisions. The more you talk, the sphere thing is not only a good idea. I know. I think it's genius. It's a no brainer, right? But like, Genius. And yeah. whatever, they, whatever they charge you, I'm sure it was a lot. It was a lot. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure it was a, a lot, a lot, a lot, but, uh, yeah. but I, I think it was a genius move. So do you see for Meta so many of the digital native tech driven experiences end up with some, I don't want to call it bricks and mortar, but some sort of live experience component. Is there a MetaQuest con in the future? Is there a, a exhibit? Is there your own version? of a Van Gogh immersive experience with this thing. Yeah, so I think I think like 100%. We because as I said like demo is so important to unlocking people really feeling like they need this thing and that it has a place in their life or it is worth the investment, like you got to try it. And so demo and experiential is a huge part of our go to market strategy. We've done a bunch of like retail pop-ups of course in all of our retail locations and the best buys, like you can demo it yourself, target. Um, and that's like a really big part of how we think about the user journey is like that point of purchase. And what's going to make you understand it is like playing Ghostbusters or Stranger Things or Lego Bricktails and having your mind totally blown by that experience and saying, I need this in my life. So yes, we do a lot of that. And then, you know, I think Connect is our like own experience. Like it is our own conference where we bring together thousands of developers in person and also remotely. And we just had it this week and it was incredible. And like, you can feel the energy from the community and just the commitment that we have to creating tools that others can participate and build things that we will never think of that like only they can. So it's really, it's been amazing to watch. Well, uh, I guess this gets a big, bold, italic watch this space over the next year and uh, just so fascinating. Yeah. So as we start to wrap this conversation, Shahar, we may have to do a two-parter here. This is so much fun. I love this. L.A., your home, home to many great things. Uh, I happen to be an enormous fan of the L.A. Jewish deli scene. And as a New Yorker, one would think that I would have a bias for the New York deli. And I actually worked in a deli, Shahar. I worked in the Windsor Park deli in Bayside, Queens. And uh, however, I happen to think that LA is the number one delicatessen city in what? America. And we can have a separate conversation uh, about that separate, if you like. Yeah. A separate podcast. <laughs> but I have to go back and, and before we get to another great LA food, the taco, mm -hmm. and we will talk about the taco truck. Before I get to that, I have to ask, were you at Marnie Shapiro's bar mitzvah or, or bat mitzvah, I should say? And what else can you tell us about Marnie that, that we think we should know? Hilarious. Um, no, I met Marnie. So she was 
launching YouTube for the CPG category in 2007. So she was much older than 13 by then. She was, she was. Yes, this is okay. After our, this is after her bar mitzvah. Um, and, and I was at Strawberry Frog. And we like met, you know, trying to do this like deal together um, for the Thank You Mom campaign on YouTube. And we've been best friends ever since. And she was my neighbor in Jersey City for a very long time. And then she moved to LA and we're neighbors here now. So we have, she used to work at Snap and I followed her there and she's unbelievable. You should have her on your show. Fantastic. Fantastic. We may have to have Shapiro on. You should. You should. So can we wrap just by talking about the taco truck? I love yeah. that. Yeah. So my husband is an entrepreneur and um, he's also a fly fisherman. And we, when we were dating, we would travel these most incredible places all over the world, fly fishing. And we spent a lot of time in Mexico and fell in love with the food scene and like how uh, delicious and authentic um, the street food scene was in Mexico City, for example, and, and, and in other parts of Mexico. And um, coming back to Hoboken, where we lived at the time, and he launched the first food truck on the East Coast. So when there was Koji, you know, out in LA, there was nothing in New York. And so he launched the first food truck. It became a brick and mortar. We had a brick and mortar in um, Hoboken and Morristown and Princeton and Boston um, and Philly. And we had a permanent location on, on the High Line in New York. And then we had like a really big catering and truck business as well. And he did that for 10 years. And it was incredible and lots of learnings and lots of tacos were had, but he has taken a break since then. And when we moved to LA, he became a stay-at-home dad and has done that the last few years. And now he's starting something else, not in the food space, but starting something else. So I'll have to tell you more soon. I, I love that. That's another yeah. watch this space. So uh, what's, yeah. your, what's, what's your go-to Mexican place in LA? Oh my God, there's so many. So the, I mean, the best places to go are the actual like tents that are like on Rose or on Lincoln. Um, and it's just, they have like just tables set up in the street essentially with like a little overhang tent over it and the carnitas and everything is just made right in front of you. So when you come, I will take you and then you can take me to your favorite Jewish delis. Oh, that sounds like an excellent, excellent yeah. culinary We're going guy. on a food tour. We're going on a oh, food tour. Oh, my goodness. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Shahar. This was so much fun, and uh, you were absolutely terrific. Thank you so much, Matt. Honestly, it was my pleasure, and I can't wait to have part two.